following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, our text for today is Matthew 5, uh, 27 through 30. We've been uh, had three weeks off, but uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount today. And so let's begin with verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, this is a heavy text of Scripture. And, uh, and it's probably one of the most countercultural passages that you will come across in all of Scripture. Uh, because because I, I say that because we, we don't just live in a culture that tolerates every form of sexual uh, gratification and perversion. No, we, glo- we live in a, ta- in a context where, where we glory in these things and, and make them the, the highest good. So this winter, I, I read a book, I meant to bring it in here with me, uh, called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. I've referenced it a couple of times. And, and in it, he includes a stunning quotation by Sigmund Freud. Now, Sigmund Freud is, is long gone uh, by this point in time, uh, but, but he includes this quote that really sums up the spirit of our time. And, and, uh, and so Freud, in, in this quotation here, is describing what he believes to be the the moral evolution, the good moral evolution of mankind from being restricted to all these laws and rules of religion to a higher being. And he says, man's discovery that sexual love afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction and in fact provided him with a prototype of all happiness must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations, and that he should make erotism the central point of his life. Now, that is a jaw-dropping quote that is, frankly, hard to fathom. He is saying to you that, that your whole purpose for living should be to pursue whatever, satis- whatever sexual gratification fancies your heart. And we might think, well, he's just a weirdo, and he was a creep. Like, when you read about him, he was a creep. But the reality is, is that Truman goes on to demonstrate that that value system has captured our culture. And the assumption of, of the elites of our day is not just that we tolerate these things, but really the best you can do is to make this the center of your life. So our culture believes that gratifying every sexual impulse is not just okay, it is praiseworthy. And you see that in the the sexualization of our media, our advertisements. Sex is everywhere. And we're constantly being told, whether implicitly or explicitly, that it is the key to your happiness. 
And of course, it's not just that we have all that pressure on us from out there. Our biggest problem, our biggest challenge with obeying this text is inside here, right? That our hearts are wicked. And the lust of the flesh is a driving force in all of us. And because of all the influences that are out there in the culture, and especially the influences that are inside our hearts, very often we become experts at justifying what we think is okay, putting up with this little thing over here, and downplaying what Jesus is telling us in this passage. But but here in our text, Jesus stands up to Freud, He stands up to Western culture. He stands up to the deceitfulness of your heart. And he says that lust has no place in the heart of a Christian. That we must not excuse it. We must not tolerate it. We must not not downplay it. No, we must eradicate it. And every sexual expression that is outside God's design. So, So this is a hard text. But but I hope that we will listen intently to what our Lord says today as our Lord, but also as our loving Savior, who who always has our best interest at heart. So, So notice, first of all, in this passage, that Jesus demands marital faithfulness. So, so look again at what he says in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now, remember from, from, I guess it's four weeks ago now, that the previous paragraph, verse 21, began by quoting the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. So, so, so Jesus quoted the commandment there, you shall not murder. And, and here he begins this paragraph by quoting the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, that's a pretty straightforward command, isn't it? And, and, and way back in, in Genesis chapter 2, God declared his intention for marriage. He said there, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in other words, God said that when you get married, you belong to each other. You are one flesh. There is an exclusivity there that, that is very unique. And the Scriptures teach as well that God designed the sexual relationship exclusively for that context. In fact, Hebrews 13.4 goes so far as to refer to the sexual relationship as the marriage bed. That's what it was made for. And as well, the Scriptures are very clear that God made this relationship to last for a lifetime. Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 6, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So when you get married... You know, contrary to what our culture says, uh, you're not just uh, making up a, a self-serving contract that you can keep as long as it serves what you desire. No, God married marriage to last for a lifetime. And when someone gets married, it's not just you taking vows. Jesus says that God joins you to your spouse. And He commands us that what He has made, we are not to destroy. So so when you take all of that into account, it's easy to see why God chose adultery as one of the sins to to attack in the Ten Commandments. It is a violent attack on marriage. And marriage is one of God's 
first creations and is one of the most foundational institutions of society. I mean, marriage really is the most basic institution in in society that, that leads to every other form of human flourishing. So, and it's fascinating, by the way, you know, that, 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 the, that the cultural elites are going to tell us that, that that's not right and, and that's not good. You know, that, that, that we've moved past, you know, such an oppressive command as the seventh commandment. We know how to, how to have a good time and, and we don't need that sort of restriction. You know, we believe that all you need is love. You know, as if, you know, you can just pursue your selfish passion and and if you love each other in, in a quasi-loving sense, that nothing else matters. Oh, you also believe if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. So we've made immediate happiness the end of all things, which in the long run, ironically, never produces joy. It always leaves us empty. You know, the most depressed the most discouraged, frustrated people are always the people that are only thinking about themselves. And you know, the reality is it's fascinating how many secular studies repeatedly demonstrate that God's design for the family uh, leads to the best outcome for for everyone. And yet Satan is a master of deceiving us to believe that I'm the exception. Now, I don't need to follow what God says. You know, so I've heard professing Christians say things like, you know, I'm not happy in my marriage. And God wants me to be happy. God's will is my happiness. So, so I know that God would want me to abandon my spouse and go have this affair because God wants me to be happy. And people tell themselves things like that all the time. And it's absurd. And And... And, and, and let me say this, you, know, you might sit there and think, yeah, that is absurd. I, I would never think that. I would never do that. You know, and, and we can think that we're above believing such nonsense. But, but you know, there's plenty of people out there too that would have at one point sat in a seat just like where you are today and said, I would never think that. I would never do that. And in a time of weakness, Satan attacks them. He goes after their heart and he captures it. And so therefore, even if no one in this room is contemplating something like adultery or unfaithfulness to your spouse, I want to say in the clearest terms possible that God condemns it. He condemns it. He hates it. And don't ever let your mind begin to wander down that path that you can come up with something better for you than God's purpose. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, Solomon warns his son, he says, For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell. And then, a couple chapters later, Solomon continues to challenge his son, because he recognizes this is, a, this is a threat. He says, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. You know, speaking there uh, of, of, of a married woman who, who is seeking to capture this young man, he says, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. 
For she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Those are powerful warnings. And and what is so good about those passages and several others in Proverbs 5 through 7 is that Solomon understands the deceptiveness of the human heart. You know, that that, that we look at something and, and we think it looks so sweet, it looks like honey is what he says. And then Satan traps us and ruins us. And so we need to understand that our hearts are are deceitful. So so don't ever sit there and and just presume on the health of your marriage. Don't ever sit there and presume on the health of your spouse or or your purity if you're you're single. No, guard your heart and guard your purity. And, And then guard your marriage. Because it is a good gift of God. It is one of the most basic blessings that God has given you if if you are married. And you will never, and and Satan will never deliver you something better than what God has already given you. Now, now it might be that you're sitting there and you're hearing all that and you'd say, you know, Pastor, I know that's what you're saying, but, but that's not my experience. You know, maybe you have tried and tried to have a good marriage. You know, maybe your spouse has abandoned you and you're on your own, or, or maybe you find yourself stuck in a, in a very difficult marriage. And, and that's hard. That's hard. And, and I would just urge you to believe that God is enough. God is enough. And, and, and that person out there who flatters you and, and promises you all this happiness that, that you think is going to be so much better than what you have right now in God's will with your spouse that it is not worth sacrificing your marriage. And it is especially not worth sacrificing the nearness of God to your life. God's grace is better than anything you can find elsewhere. So, So Jesus begins by affirming the seventh commandment. God demands marital faithfulness. But, but verse 28 is where Jesus really turns up the heat. And he says... And it teaches there that Jesus demands purity of heart. So, so verse 28 again says, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is one of those verses that, that just hits you like a ton of bricks, right? And I imagine it had a similar effect when Jesus first preached this sermon. But, but the reality is, is that verse 28 shouldn't be that surprising because Because really, for the most part, all that Jesus does here is is combine the implications of the seventh commandment and the tenth commandment. So the tenth commandment said that that, that you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And I think you could say by implication, your neighbor's husband, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything else that is your neighbor's. So, so lust and covetousness, they're, they're, they're very closely related. They're almost synonymous. And they both refer to a strong desire to have something which God has not given me. And at their core, they're not just a desire. They are a declaration that what God has given me is not enough that God is not, has not been good to me. 
And therefore, I want this object of my desire more than I want God himself. And as well, I think it's important to recognize that that the 10th commandment also notes that, that, that covetousness is also a violation of my love of neighbor. Because it always prioritizes my gratification over the good of someone else. Yeah, and I'll just tell you right up front that, that that is always true of sexual lust. You know, that our culture wants to say that, that when you lust after a person, that's love. But it's really just selfishness. It is turning a fellow image bearer of God into an object of my pleasure. And that is not loving your neighbor. That is sin. So, so verse 28 here is mostly drawing out an implication of the 7th and 10th commandment uh, that, that God had already said that it is wrong uh, not just to commit adultery, but also to desire your neighbor's wife or, or your neighbor's husband. And so I do just want to emphasize that, that what he's saying here is equally applicable to men and women, every context, every desire, all right? But, but Jesus also goes even further here by saying that lust directed not just toward your neighbor's wife, but toward any woman or man by implication whether married or not, is a serious sin that Jesus says is on the level of adultery. And he says to lust after a woman that is not your wife is to commit adultery with her in, her heart, in your heart. Now that is a huge claim. And so we do need to make sure that we understand exactly what Jesus means. So, so, so what does Jesus mean by, by lust? Well, first of all, I do want to be clear that Jesus does not condemn all physical attraction, all right? And, and that's important because, because I, I know I, I was maybe there for a time uh, as a teenager and probably into college, and, and maybe there might be some people that think this way too, that, that Jesus says all lust is bad, so, so the answer is, is to drive any sort of physical attraction out of my heart. Just kill it. It's all bad, it's all wicked, it's all gross. But, but that's not what the Bible teaches, So, for example, we won't read it today, but Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 19 say that a husband and wife should enjoy each other physically and sexually, and they celebrate it. Scriptures also teach that 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 pleasure, that that physical relationship and gratification that you receive in marriage is an important means of of promoting the health of the marriage and the exclusivity of the marriage and, and of protecting each other from outside temptations. Uh, but as well, the Song of Solomon te- teaches, uh, that, 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 or it celebrates the physical attraction between uh, a couple that is preparing for marriage. So, so we got a lot of single people here, a lot of teenagers. You, you shouldn't feel guilty, all right, about being attracted to the opposite sex. And God wants you to be attracted to your future spouse. And, and that's a good thing. So I want to make that clear. Secondly, it's more to, to clarify that Jesus does not condemn an innocent sight or the temptation to lust. Now, now, sometimes we just see things that we don't want to see, right? Because things come across our path that we're not expecting or anticipating, and that's not sin. And, and as well, it's not a sin to be tempted, to, 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 have, to have, a, have a, an impulse arise in your heart. The issue is what you do with it. Now, now, that's not to say that you shouldn't work to eliminate temptation. You know, temptation's not a sin, so I'm going to put myself in the way of temptation as much as possible. The scriptures are say that you should flee temptation, flee youthful lusts. 
And, uh, and as well, the Bible would teach that, that you ought to work to sanctify your desires so, so that temptations do not uh, come across as strongly as they maybe do in the moment. That's a topic for another day. Uh, but I simply want to note that, that that's not what Jesus has in mind. No, a couple of things about what Jesus does mean here. He, he means, uh, or Jesus condemns, prolonged and intentional covetousness. Now, I put those adjectives there because, you know, one feature of, of verse 28 that, that we can easily miss is that the verb lust is in the present tense. And, and in this particular context, uh, it, it, that indicates not just a glance, but, but, but it is talking about a, a continual or, or, or constant gaze or, or lust. All right, so, so Jesus here is not condemning the guy. You know, he's walking through the grocery store. He rounds the corner and boom, you know, there's this, this woman here, you know, that, that's not wearing enough stuff. And uh, whoa, you know, and, you know, and, uh, and he turns away immediately. No, no, he's speaking of someone who sees something that God has forbidden. But, but rather than turning away, he continues to gaze and, and to lust after it and to enjoy it. And Jesus says that that sort of lust is wicked and it is ungodly. And as well, Jesus is teaching, or Jesus condemns self-indulgent passions and imaginations. So it's not just that he condemns the look, right? Because Jesus says that this man who is lusting, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. So, so it's not just the look that he condemns, it's, it's also the passions and the imaginations that, that generally accompany that look. And Jesus says there is no place in the heart of a Christian for arousing those desires or indulging them outside of God's clearly defined parameters within the context of marriage. You know, so we've got a lot of singles here and a lot of teenagers so I think this is just a good spot to mention that, 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 that if you're dating someone, you should not touch each other or, or do other things to arouse sensual passions within each other that you cannot satisfy biblically. And so we live in a day where you're, you know, and, and this is even common sometimes in Christian circles to think, well, as long as you don't cross that line of immorality, you can go right up to that line, just don't cross the line. But if you are doing things with the person you're dating to arouse these desires, it's sinful, and it has no place in your relationship. Now, I recognize that I'm saying things, again, that are way out of bounds with our culture and way out of bounds even with a lot of Christianity. But, but your argument, if you don't like what I'm saying, is not with me, it's with Jesus, because Jesus is very clear in his word. That sexual lust has no place in the heart of a Christian. And, and, and Jesus drives that home when he describes for us as well the severity of lust. I mean, the way Jesus condemns this here, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, Jesus says the one who lusts has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, now considering how strongly the Bible condemns adultery. I mean, think about the fact that in the, under the Old Testament law, adultery was punishable by up to stoning. So it was a big deal. 
And Jesus here puts adult or puts lust in the same category then as that sort of sin. Now, now I do not believe that Jesus is saying that the two are literally equivalent of each other. All right, so 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 the Bible um, uh, has very strong things to say repeatedly about immorality and, and about adultery and those actions uh, that, that that ultimately are going to arise from a very perverse heart. So 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 I do not believe that the Bible the Bible is saying that these things are literally equivalent. And uh, we'll talk more next week about in verses thirty one and thirty two about the significance of immorality and and the consequences of it. But but at the very least, Jesus is saying that lust is in the same category as adultery. They are similar sins. So when a man or woman craves someone in a way that they should only crave a husband or a wife, it is a wicked sin before God. Even if they never act on that craving. And that's because in some sense, when you do that, you are giving a portion of your heart to someone other than your spouse. You know, so if you're married and you're looking around at other men and women in a way that you should only look at your spouse, you are giving that other person a part of your heart that belongs only to your husband or wife. You know, or if you're single and, and you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm free. You know, so you're looking around, enjoying this, enjoying that. You're giving away portions of your heart. And I'll just warn you, it's going to be really hard to get them back when you get married someday. Just because you get married doesn't mean you're going to be able to bring all that back in and have all that back. It is a violation of God's design. And, and again, I, I, you know, that's, that's not what our culture thinks. You know, our culture would tell you that pornography is a safe, easy way to satisfy your cravings without hurting anyone else. So take advantage of it. You know, I, I mean, I, I saw stuff last summer during COVID when people were locked up saying, you know, you, since you can't go out and do all these other things, you know, take advantage of pornography. It's a good alternative. And we live in a society where, uh, you know, you, if you watch TV, you listen to the radio, you'll hear married people, you know, talking all the time about people they're not married to. You know, and talk about how, how attractive they are and just boasting in their lust. You ever heard a guy at work say something like, you know, we went to the beach this weekend and I enjoyed the scenery? They're not talking about the, the sand and the water. They're talking and they, they boast in, in the things that, that they that their perverse desires. But but folks, Jesus said back in verse 6 in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the heart of a believer. And if that's me, if, if I hunger and thirst after righteousness, then I need to hate every junk that is contrary to the righteousness of God. And I should hate pornography. I should hate every temptation to lust. And I should work hard by the grace of God to view other people not as objects of my pleasure, but as people made in the image of God that I am to love with a sacrificial Christ-like love, not a selfish perversion. So, so, God, so, so Jesus here doesn't just demand that you are pure in your actions. He is also clear that you need to be pure in your heart. And in light of this, Jesus' third demand 
is that he demands that we aggressively pursue holiness. Look again at what he says in verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now again, those are, those are pretty countercultural verses. Cheryl Crow would tell you, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. But Jesus does not agree. No, he says that the stakes here are incredibly high. So, so he says here, and I mean, notice here that in verses 29 and 30, they both conclude by assuming that when you toy with, I mean, think about what Jesus says here. When you toy with lust, you are putting your eternal destiny at stake right? Because twice Jesus warns, you risk your whole body being cast into hell. Now, now why would Jesus say such a thing? And of course, we know that he's not saying that a true believer can lose his salvation and be cast into hell because he's clear in other places that that's not possible. But, But he is saying that lust and adultery are so contrary to the nature of the new birth that they cannot continue unchecked in the heart of someone in whom the Spirit of God dwells. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10 say, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. So, So Jesus, or excuse me, Paul here says, that these sins are fundamentally opposed to the nature of the new birth. They're contrary to the work of God and His people. And he then goes on to say that when someone gets saved, that the gospel goes after these things. So so verse 11 follows by saying, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So, So the gospel changes this. It attacks it. Now, and Jesus here says that that extends even to your heart's desire. And he's saying that you cannot hunger and thirst for righteousness while hungering and thirsting after sexual perversion. And if you choose the latter, and you just continually choose the latter, then you risk your whole body being cast into hell. Now, now does that mean then that, that a true believer cannot commit a serious sin or, or endure some sort of long-term difficult struggle with, with purity? Uh, of course not. You know, there, there are plenty of examples of, of true believers who have committed serious sins or, or have endured long struggles against deeply embedded habits. But the key is, is that a Christian is never content in those things. The Spirit of God is at work in his heart, and they want out. So, so if you've been sitting here you know, for the last, I don't know, 30 minutes or whatever it's been, and, and you're trying everything in your power to, to put up your walls, you know, what I'm doing is okay, or, or Jesus doesn't apply to me, or, or, or yeah, but I've got this excuse. 
and you really are not interested in, in pursuing what Jesus says, then, then, I, then I'll say to you with all the love that I can muster, I hope that the Holy Spirit will tear your heart to shreds. And I pray that he will make you miserable until you repent. Because that misery is worth the cost of your soul. Do not justify these things. Do not downplay them. You know, if you're a parent, you know, don't just think, Johnny's a sweet little boy, he would never do these things. You be aggressive and proactive in promoting purity with your kids. You might feel really awkward having those conversations or, or attacking those things. But it's worth the soul of your son. You know, most, most people that have long-term struggles and with pornography and lust and all those things, it doesn't start when they're 25. It starts when they're preteens or young teens. So don't be naive about those things. You address them, and you address them aggressively. So, so, so these are not things to toy with. Heaven and hell are at stake. Your family is at stake. If you are single, the, the, the joy of your marriage down the road is at stake. So, so take these things seriously. And, and if you need to repent of sin, repent today and get right. Because this matters. And then follow your repentance by understanding that the stakes require radical amputation. Now, now verses 29 and 30, they are intended to be shocking. There there is a a definite shock effect that Jesus is going for here. And and, and that's because in part, in the ancient world, the right eye and, and the right hand were considered to be especially strong and especially valuable. So so imagine you're a soldier. And you gouge out your right eye. Well, all of a sudden, you don't have the ability to aim your your bow. Or you cut off your right arm, how are you going to handle a sword? I mean, you're a dead man out there. So, so, So Jesus here is saying, he is making a big claim. The purity of your heart is is worth your most essential parts of your body. Now, now, I do want to be clear here that Jesus is not calling for you to literally you know, gouge out your eyes and cut off your arms. So, so we're not going to have an invitation at the end of the service, you know, come forward and I'll gouge your eye out. All right? We're not doing anything like that today. Um, and, and so we, we do need to be careful here. I, I remember back in 2006, there was a small Christian college in Knoxville, Tennessee, and a student took this, this command to the extent that he burned down an adult book and video store and... Uh, he got in big trouble for doing that. And, uh, and so that's not what Jesus is calling you to do. And, and what that student missed is the fact that, that burning down a building was not going to eliminate the, the perversion in his own heart. So, so Jesus here is not saying to literally do these things. But, but while he is not saying that, he is saying that you need to be willing to take radical steps to guard your heart. So, so for example, if you can't control it, then throw your phone away. Throw your computer away. Throw away your TV. You know, if, if, you, if there's a portion of your drive to work that, that you can't manage, then, then by all means, spend a few extra bucks and take 15 minutes longer to drive around that part of your, your drive. If you need to change jobs because of some person at work that, that is a temptation to you, then, then do it. 
You know, if, if you're dating and you really love that person that you're dating, then you better be a whole lot more concerned about their safety and their purity than you are about, about going after whatever perverse desires in your heart. We need to be willing to take radical steps. Now, now you might hear all that and think, well, well, pastor, that's just a bunch of legalism and nonsense. You know, I mean, all these rules and regulations, we're free from all that in Jesus. And, and yes, sometimes people get really legalistic about these things. And, and we can erect walls for the sake of the wall and not for the sake of the purpose. So we need to stay focused on, on the end goal here, right? Which is I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to be right with God. And when that is your heart, then, then all those walls become very valuable and very important. And, and folks, they are all worth your soul. They're worth your family. They are worth your gospel witness. And they are a small price to pay for the nearness of God and his blessing and grace on your life. So, so don't be afraid to take radical steps to, to guard your heart and to guard the hearts of others. And to close our time, and, so, and so, so, I hope, so I hope today that we will feel the urgency of what Jesus is saying here, and, and that we will respond accordingly. Now, now maybe you're sitting there and, and you think, well, that's really important, and, and you know, I've got struggles, and uh, I have needs, so, so where do I go from here? Well, well, I'd like to close with four practical steps for pursuing purity. And, uh, and I've used these in other places, so maybe you've heard me say this before, but, but first of all, I want to challenge you to build resistance through the disciplines of grace. Now, Psalm 119, verse 9 and verse 11 say, how can a young man keep his way pure? That's a very relevant question for us today, isn't it? And he says, by keeping it according to your word. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And so what, what, what the psalm is saying is that what's so often true is that the best defense against sin is a good offense, that, 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 that you need to be healthy. So if you are living in the Word of God, you're living in prayer, you're happily engaged in the life of the church, you're, you're, you're disciplining yourself to godliness, you're, you're focused on obeying His commands, then, then there are just fewer cracks for Satan to exploit. It's kind of like your body. You know, so, so you know, we're, we're surrounded by viruses and bacteria and all sorts of stuff that wants to destroy your body. So what's better? To, to constantly be getting sick and getting antibiotics and this and that and this and that. Or, or to live a healthy life. You know, if you're in good health, your immune system's strong, you're taking care of yourself, that, then your body is, is able to ward off most of that stuff before it is even able to take root. And you ought to approach your spiritual life the same way. That, that walk in good spiritual health. And all of a sudden, there's not nearly as much room for Satan to get in. That doesn't mean he can't get in, but it's a lot more difficult. You know, and, and, and so, you know, you might think, for example, you know, you came in here today and you're struggling with X sin. And we're singing about God's glory and God's sovereignty, and you're like, what in the world does that have to do with where I'm struggling today? Well, it has everything to do with where you're struggling. Because if you are rightly walking with the Lord and your vision of Him is clear, then that sin is going to be in a whole, you're going to see it a whole lot better than if you're not. So, so build resistance through a disciplined life of grace. Secondly, build obstacles to failure. 
So if you're struggling with sexual temptation or any other sin, you really need to take some time to identify patterns to your struggle. So is there a particular time of day when your struggle is especially strong? Is there a certain television show, style of music, location, or or person that arouses your flesh in an unusual way? So, So think intentionally about those things. When does my sin occur? When does Satan go after me the strongest? And then build obstacles to, to failure. So, so, you know, Jesus said, I mean, see, he's saying here, don't be afraid then to take radical steps. Now, I don't care how much money you spent on that iPhone. It is better to throw it in the trash than to go to hell. So, so, so whatever it might be, build obstacles. Another very important obstacle is accountability. The Christian life is too hard for you to do it by yourself. So, so if you're struggling, find someone who will ask you the tough questions and, and who will say the hard things and, and let them share your struggle with you because we need each other. And, and then third, replace sinful patterns and habits. So, so we won't take time to read it, but Ephesians 4, 22 through 32 teaches that an important part of putting off sin is replacing it with something positive. So So you don't just get rid of anger, you pursue love. You don't just try and get rid of lust, you you try and replace it with with genuine love, sacrificial love, and and good things. And uh, and by the way, your replacement doesn't have to be like praying all day or doing something super spiritual. It might be that you need to start running. You know, exercise, take up a, a productive hobby, get out with goodly friend, good, good godly friends. But, but do not say, I'm not going to do that anymore, and then just sit there and stare at the thing that you're not going to do anymore. Because eventually you're going to do it again. So, so replace it with things that are going to push you in a better direction. And then fourth, deal with failure biblically. You know, and if you, if you really find yourself stuck in a, in a serious sin pattern, the question is not if you will fail. The question is, how will you respond when you do? And so when you do fail, confess it to the Lord. Rest in God's promise to forgive. Learn from your failure, like what happened that I can do better next time. And then try again. Get up by the grace of God. And in confidence that His grace is enough to sustain you and keep going. Now, now maybe you've heard all this today and, um, and God's Spirit is convicting your heart like He never has before. You've always thought, I'm a pretty good guy. Like, I've got it together and God certainly accepts me and He can't possibly be that disappointed with me. But, but like, God's Word is hitting you. And you are realizing today for the very first time that you really are a broken sinner in desperate need of grace. And, and I want to be very clear today that if that's you, cleaning up lust will not make, alone will not make you right with God. You need to be born again by the Spirit of God. And, and, so, and so there is a deep work that needs to take place, and we want to talk to you today about what Jesus did for you on the cross and how you can know that your sins are forgiven in Him, and how you can be united to Christ, as we talked about last week, 
and, and receive a power in him to change that you will never find in yourself. So, so, so if you have not received Christ, please be born again today. And then finally, I hope uh, that you all know that, that whatever your struggle is, you are not alone in facing that. You are surrounded by sinners, and we have all fallen in our own ways. You know, I, I've heard people come into church and say things like, I feel like I'm the only sinner. And I'd say, you know, just get to know people. And you'll find out pretty quickly that you're not alone. And, and, and if you feel like you're sticking out like a sore thumb today, I would say to you that, that any mature believer knows that I am what I am solely by the grace of God. Solely by the grace of God. And, you know, I, I've told people before, and, I, and I'll say it again today, you know, if you are struggling, you might think, boy, I really need help, but, but boy, pastor is going to, he's going to fall out of his chair if I tell him how I'm struggling. And I promise you that will not happen. You will not surprise me. And, and that's, that's a sad thing, but it's true. You will not surprise me with the way that you sin. Because... I think any, again, any, any mature believer understands our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And, and so we all are broken. And, and unfortunately, I've seen enough in my 39 years of life to know that Satan is strong and sin is powerful. So, so do not be ashamed to get help. And, and even if it's scary, even if you are terrified about admitting to someone what is wrong in your life and, and, and where you struggle and it's embarrassing and, and you think that, you know, they're not going to think you're a man anymore or, or not a strong woman anymore. And whatever your fear is, it is not worth more than being right with God. There is nothing more precious than to be right with your Savior. So, so let's all today help each other onto Christ and help each other onto glory. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the admonitions of this text. And Lord, I don't know what your spirit is doing right now, um, but, but I pray that he is working in, in unusual ways uh, through this very unusual passage of Scripture. And God, I pray uh, that we would not leave and forget what your spirit is doing right now. And Lord, if there are things that we need to deal with, Lord, may we confess them and deal with them immediately. And may we covenant before you that we will get the help that we need to change and to grow and to please you. And so please help us, Father, by your grace to honor you in this broken world, in these broken sinful bodies. And by your grace, bring us to glory in the strength and in the grace that you alone provide. In Jesus' name.